Welcome to the Mitchell Empower podcast. I'm your host, Shelly Callahan, and I'm here with Brian Allen, our VP of Government Affairs. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Shelly. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, we're talking about 2019 and previewing everything that's going on in government affairs when it comes to legislative changes, formulary changes, opioid legislation, and of course, the ever-popular medical marijuana. There's a lot to discuss, and Brian, I'm so glad you're here. Let's kick it off with what major legislative movements you think will be happening this year. Well, I think we're going to see a lot of what we saw in 2018. I think you're going to continue to see some work on the opioid crisis. Um, it, you know, we continue to be plagued by uh, far too many uh, overdoses related to opioids. And I think you're going to continue to see some legislative push on that, not only on the, on the pharmaceutical opioids, but on the, the street opioids as well. I think that's getting to be a bigger and bigger problem. And I, I think that's going to be a, a focus for a lot of legislatures. I think we're going to continue to see movement on drug formularies. I know that a couple of states have had studies over the interim in 2018, and I think we'll be seeing legislation possibly in Nebraska. I think it's possible in, in uh, some southeastern states that have been considering it. So we're, we're keeping an eye on drug formularies as well. And there's a couple of states that are kind of in the middle of them that we'll be working with as well. I think you're going to also see some movement on, you know, outside of the world that we're in necessarily, but in the workers' comp space, I think you're going to see some reform efforts take shape in states um, that have been kind of tinkering around the edges. Uh, but now I think with some of the changes that we saw in the legislative races and the composition of some of the state legislatures, I think you're going to see a real push to really take some a hard look at the the way their systems are working and the kinds of benefits that are being delivered to injured workers. And I think there's going to be a real push to kind of evaluate that. There's been several lawsuits over the last several years regarding the constitutionality about workers' comp and whether or not we're still sort of meeting that grand bargain that was made a hundred and some odd years ago. And I think it's good to have those discussions and it's good to have that evaluation. And I think that's going to lead to some changes. I mean, the workers' comp reform is one of those areas where the pendulum kind of swings back and forth. And, and I, think it's, I, I think you're going to see in some states some course correction and some, some, some shifting back to some of the fundamental principles that they, that they you know, kind of rested on years ago. Uh, so I think that's going to happen. I think you're going to see a lot of work on drug costs around the country, not just in workers' comp, but in the general health system been a big issue. There's, you're hearing a lot of noise about it from the White House and from Congress. And I think you're hearing a lot of noise from it in state houses. And I think you're going to see some effort there. Certainly an area that we, we have concern in as well, and we'll be um, engaging in that discussion as it occurs. So those are probably the big things. I think medical marijuana, I think you're going to continue to see movement on, on marijuana issues in general. The New York governor just recently announced that he's going to set forth a proposal for recreational marijuana in New York state. And I think the idea of marijuana is now legal medically in 33 states. It's legal recreationally in nine states. I think that bell's been rung. I don't think there's any way to unring it at this point. I think more states are going to jump on that bandwagon, especially as these states in the recreational sense are gathering a lot of tax revenue. It certainly garners the attention of policymakers. And that, I think, will drive a lot of, of effort. And it, it kind of fits hand in glove with some of the 
other criminal justice reform efforts that are going on, and they're trying to decriminalize minor offenses, especially minor drug offenses. And marijuana kind of fits in that mindset for most people. And I think that you're going to see a movement at the federal level to do something with marijuana over the next 18 months. I think it may be the one bipartisan issue that can get through Congress, uh, you know, given the division that's going to occur after the first year. But I think it's an area where both parties and, and both uh, and most people in Washington agree it's it's time for Congress to act because the states are way, way ahead of where the federal government is. They have a law in place that they're really not enforcing um, and is basically being flaunted by the states at this point. And it really boils down to a state's rights issue and, and whether or not states have the ability to govern some of this stuff within their own borders. And most of the states are arguing they believe it is their right to do that. And I think they're taking that proactive approach when they pass these marijuana laws. And, uh, you know, and I think I think once Congress does something to change the scheduling of marijuana, it'll open up a lot more opportunity for clinical study and, and help us get our head around what's really happening with with marijuana. What what does it do? What doesn't it do? What are the long side long term side effects, if any? And, and how should it be? distributed and made available to patients in a medical sense if if it's going to be out there and available. So those are all questions that need to be answered, I think, going forward. And I think ultimately Congress is going to have to do something. And I think the time is ripening for them to do something. And so I really expect something to happen on medical marijuana at the federal level in the next 18 months. Brian, I think you're absolutely right. There's so many new faces on the national level, but also in state houses, um, specifically after these midterm elections and now that people are taking office. What things do you think we should be looking at? What are legislators thinking about and what do people in our industry need to take into account? I think one of the one of the biggest challenges that we face in the work comp industry at the legislative level is really the sort of lack of institutional knowledge. I mean, for years, we had people in place that were sort of the iconic go-to sort of founts of knowledge in legislative bodies that, that understood work comp, that had worked on workers' comp issues. But with term limits and retirements and just the general political landscape changing, a lot of those people have left. And so you've got a lot of new people coming in. And so one of our biggest challenges, but it's also a great opportunity, is we have to go out and educate these new legislators on what work comp policy is out there, what works, what doesn't work, where are the abuses, where are the successes, and you know, kind of give them a picture of here's, here's what really works. And as they get into reforming their system, they can look at what's working around the country and they can make an evaluation as to whether or not that's a good policy or, or, or an opportunity for their state. I think the other interesting thing that happened that, that actually makes movement on issues maybe a little easier is for the first time in 104 years, we have all but one state uh, that has both houses of their legislature represented by the same party. The exception to that is Minnesota, which is still divided. And then of course, Nebraska is unicameral so, and it's nonpartisan, so we don't, we don't count that. But you've got all the other states you have either the Democrats or the Republicans controlling the House and the Senate or the Assembly and the Senate, depending on the state you're in, that bodes well for getting policy through. However, you still have governors of different parties that, that are sitting in the governor's chair. So you still have to get through that hurdle if you're getting it through your legislature. But for the most part, there's a lot of a lot more 
cohesiveness amongst the, the legislative chambers. And I think you'll see a lot of things moving forward that have not moved in the past because of that. And I think, you know, for example, in Illinois, where that you've had a fairly strongly Democratic legislature, but they had a Republican governor who vetoed everything. They now have a, a Democratic governor coming in. So Illinois, that has been trying to, to struggle with reform for a number of years, is probably going to have a real opportunity to get something done now based on the composition of their legislature and their governor's office. So hopefully we'll see some, some good things happening there. But in a lot of states, I think you're going to see some things moving through legislative chambers that haven't moved in the past because of that unification of parties across the House and the Senate. Finally, right, getting some movement on uh, some of the the pieces that the industry has been really anxious to um, get some movement forward. Um, and I think you have a great point that education can be a major vehicle to uh, having that happen. I think of success stories in Texas and California. Maybe you could highlight some of those stories and how legislators are looking to uh, piggyback on those best practices. Sure, I mean, I think I think drug formularies um, were have been really very successful in in most of the states that have implemented them. You know, Texas was one of the early adopters of the ODG formulary, and they've had really good success in reducing some of the the what what, what they call end drugs, the not the not preferred or drugs that would require preauthorization before being prescribed. List so they've reduced those drugs by over uh, the spend on those drugs by eighty percent, which is pretty significant. And some of those end drugs are some of the long-term opioids that really are the the opioids that create a lot of the problems out there in the system. So getting those cut back is really a positive thing. The other thing that happened in Texas with their overall drug spend is when they implemented the formulary and were providing guidance to the physicians on what can and can't be prescribed. Or, or what can be prescribed without authorization, what needs to be authorized before it can be prescribed. It, it really made a difference on the overall prescribing trend. You, see, you saw an actual reduction in, in the overall number of prescriptions being handed out to injured workers, which ultimately ended, led to a little cost savings. But it also kind of speaks well to the power of the drug formulary to sort of guide appropriate pharmacy care. And that's really what a formulary should be designed to do is, is design, it should be helping the doctors understand what are the best medications for this individual with this injury at this time in their care. And the formulary is very good at doing that. And I think that's helped reduce the overall drug utilization in Texas by a a fairly, you know, measurable number. I mean, I think it's like, you know, I think we saw eight or 9% reduction in overall drug spend. I mean, there was a concern when the formulary passed that they would just replace the drugs that they couldn't, that they were on the end list with other drugs, but that really didn't happen. They really, they really kind of did what the formulary was designed to do and they got to the right drugs. We're seeing the same thing in California. I mean, California used the ACOM model and they're having very, very good success with their, you know, their early results are very positive and they're seeing a reduction in the use of some of the more challenging opioids and other drugs. You're seeing less co-prescribing of drugs where there's a sort of a risk of dangerous interaction. Ohio and Washington are two monopolistic states that have done sort of their own formulary. And both of them are also having really good success with their drug formulary. So when the drug formularies have been implemented, they seem to be pretty successful. There is a little, you know, initially some a little pushback because it's a change. But I think once people get into it and understand how they work and what they're designed to do, that that, you know, the resistance will goes away. We expected fully when Texas did their drug formulary that there would be a lot of disputes 
And it turned out there weren't anywhere near as many as anybody had expected. In fact, it was much, much less than most people expected. And uh, because the doctors got on board and they, they decided that they were going to, you know, work with the drug formulary and it's worked out fine, I think for the most part. And uh, we, we just, we're not hearing a lot of complaints about the drug formulary in Texas as we, you know, and we, we spend a lot of time and do a lot of work in Texas. So I think th- th- those are big successes. And I think states can learn from that. And I think they are watching, learning and listening. And that's why I think you're going to continue to see drug formularies, you know, move across the state. And it's really incumbent upon all of us in the system to help these new legislators understand here are the things that are working. And, you know, one of the things that when I was a legislator that I really appreciated is if someone came to me with a problem, that was great. But I really, really appreciated those who actually came with a solution. And so we need to take solutions to them that we know are proven, that we can that we can document are proven and, and help them understand these are the things that work in the system. And here are the things that you can do in your state to help make this happen and to, to get better results for your injured workers. And that's ultimately, you know, what should be the focus of all of our discussions with policymakers is how do we deliver the best and most appropriate care to injured workers? How do we make sure they have access to the best care? And how do we make sure that we do everything we can to get them as well as we can as quickly as we can? I love that. It's really the focus on helping workers get back to health and back to their lives. Maybe you can give us some more insights into what you're working on this year as well. Well, I mean, we're, we're going to be active in a number of, of states where we know some changes are coming. We'll certainly be engaged if there's formulary bills introduced anywhere. Um, and, you know, we fully expect something to happen in Nebraska um, I think, you know, Pennsylvania is going to be doing some regulatory work on compounded medications that we'll be involved in. Uh, and, um, you know, New York's got some regulatory work going on around their drug formulary that we want to stay engaged with. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're doing something very unique that's specific to New York that, that they're, they're interested in doing. And we certainly want to help them make that successful. And um, I think you're going to see some, some changes in, Florida this year. I think Florida's going to be working on some work comp issues. They've they've been, you know, tinking around with it and they haven't haven't done a whole lot. Um, so we'll certainly be engaged there. We continue to work with some of the legislative groups like um, the National Council of Insurance Legislators on model legislation that can be used around the country. I know that the uh, NCOIL group is, has been working on and I think just approved a, a physician dispensing model law. And I think that's an area that we'll, we'll continue to see some effort on. And they also worked on a PBM model law that we were engaged in, um, and we'll certainly be following those issues. And so we're going to be working a lot at the regulatory and the legislative level this year, trying to help educate and help the new people understand, here's what's been happening in workers' comp. Here are the trends. Here are things that we know are working well in other states that we'd like you to think about. And we'd certainly be happy to provide data to them. And we certainly want to go on to, you know, a a fairly concerted effort to educate these new legislators about work comp policy um, because they're going to be around for a while. I think the crop that came in this year around the country is they seem pretty capable and they seem pretty engaged and and interested in being there. Um, And we certainly want to help, their learning curve go go well on the work comp issue. So we're going to be engaged in, in a number of states. And it's hard to say right now which ones we're going to really spend our most time in because we haven't seen all the bills that are going to be filed. 
but we anticipate we're going to be busy in you know at least a dozen states this year on on various issues and possibly more. Um, there's certainly a I want to say an, an atmosphere of change in the air uh, around the country in, in on a lot of issues, not just workers' comp issues, but I think workers' comp is going to be an area that's going to see some activity, and and uh, we want to be there, and we want to be there with our customer partners and our other vendor partners to make sure that we're giving them the best information that they can have when they're making those decisions. Fantastic. You know, you always have your finger on the pulse of some court cases and decisions that may come up, whether it's about the legality of workers' comp in general or whether or not to cover medical marijuana. Uh, what are you looking at this year? Well, I, you know, I think, I think you're going to continue to see constitutional challenges to the work comp laws. I mean, I think there, there is a sense amongst some, um, I, I don't know that, I mean, I, we, we don't necessarily have a position on this one way or another as an organization, but we certainly watch the trends and we certainly see, you know, some groups out there clamoring for better benefits for injured workers. Uh, some groups feel like the pendulum has swung too far to the benefit of employers. And you're hearing a lot of talk about that in some of the state houses. So we're going to see some some movement on that, I think, in the courts. I think when it comes to marijuana, until Congress acts, it's, continued to, it's going to continue to be an issue that churns up through the courts. We've had, you know, a number of different states rule differently on, you know, in Maine, for example, there was a, a case where it went all the way through the appellate court and the appellate court ruled that uh, an employer would have to reimburse for medical marijuana when it got to the main Supreme Court this last summer the main Supreme Court said uh, no that's not really so it's not it's not within our purview or you know it's it's really not our role as a court to force an employer to violate federal law and as long as ma- marijuana remained illegal federally the main Supreme Court ruled that employers would not have to be you know would not be forced to pay for it we have other states where there have been, you know, appellate court decisions, but they haven't been appealed. Um, and so they're sort of languishing. So I don't know what's going to happen with those. Um, but we've, I do believe you're going to see more court activity on medical marijuana because it's becoming more and more prevalent. And a lot of the state laws are silent on how, you know, marijuana should be reimbursed by an insurance company or employer in a workers' comp space. One thing that happened in Utah, Utah voters passed an initiative and the initiative was I guess it had some problems. There was a compromise announced before the vote was ever taken that the legislature and the proponents of the initiative said they were going to vote on right after the bill, right after the election. So in December, there was a, a compromise bill that passed. The Utah legislature was signed by the governor. But in that bill, they did include a provision that said that insurance companies and employers would not be required to pay for medical marijuana. So it's nice when they clarify that so it keeps it out of the courts, but a lot of states that haven't done that, it ultimately goes to the courts. And the courts, at least the lower courts in most of the states where it's been you know, heard and, and adjudicated, have not been persuaded by the argument that it's illegal at the federal level. They're looking at, these are state court judges looking at state law, and they don't, they don't really care or didn't care what the federal law said. Now, the main Supreme Court saw that differently. But we've seen that in a number of states on on marijuana issues where it's been legal in a state and it only gets to the Supreme Court. And then the Supreme Court says, yeah, it's still illegal federally. And there was one like that in Colorado. It wasn't a workers' comp case necessarily, but it was a drug-free workplace case where 
an individual tested positive for medical marijuana, had a marijuana card and was using it legally under the Colorado law, but the employer still terminated him because they had a drug-free workplace policy. And that went all the way to the Colorado Supreme Court. And the Colorado Supreme Court said, while it is legal at the state level, it's still illegal federally. And our drug-free workplace law says that you can't use any illegal substance. And so while it's it's still illegal. So they ruled in favor of the employer. So you're getting a lot of different opinions. And, and we've seen a number of cases around the country where employers have either failed to hire someone because of a positive marijuana test or terminated someone after the fact. And the courts have been divided, uh, at, at, even at the federal level. You've got you know, a federal district court saying, no, you can't do that, it's discrimination. But you have a, an appellate court that said, yes, you can do it. You're not, you know, discrimination doesn't protect the use of illegal drugs. And so there's all this conflicting case law out there. And I think it's gotta be resolved. And the only way that's gonna get resolved is you're either gonna have to have a case go all the way to the US Supreme Court or Congress has gotta do something. And I really believe Congress is gonna do something. I think the time has come and I think it's gonna happen. And that's really what we're looking toward is for that to get resolved. And I think it'll just help solve a lot of problems for the industry. And I think just solve a lot of problems for all the states that are out there passing marijuana laws. It's going to be an exciting year. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, it's not going to be it's not going to be a year short of issues to work on. It's going to be a, I think it's going to be a very busy year. I think it's going to take a lot of lifting on the part of stakeholders in the work comp space to make sure that things get done right. And uh, and I think it's going to take a lot of, of time and patience and education to really sit down and help those legislators that are making decisions or those new regulators are going to be making decisions on, you know, here's here's the issues and, and here's what you need to consider when you're making those decisions. Uh, we can't make the decisions for them. All we can do is give them the best information that we have available and hope that they make the right decision. Fantastic. Anything else that you'd love to share with our listeners? Um, you know, I, I would just say if, if, you know, if you have interest in these issues, you know, I would just encourage everyone to stay engaged with their, their state legislators that they work with and they have relationships with. If they have a lot of new people that they don't have relationships with, I would encourage them to, to build relationships there. What we ultimately want are legislators who are going to go to the right sources to get the right information to make the right decisions. There's nothing, nothing worse than trying to make a decision when you have only half the facts or you have not very good facts. And it's a lot easier when you know you've been able to vet a lot of the issues through the various experts that are out in the communities that they serve in. And I think people just need to stay engaged in the legislative process. I know sometimes it's grueling and it's, it can be hard and discouraging, but you know we, we need to do our best to make sure that we're giving the best information we can to those that are making decisions. And I think they really, really appreciate it. And I think it's, it, I think they want to hear from us. And uh, I've never, I've never had a legislator tell me that they were sorry that they spent time with me. They, they've always been very grateful of the time and effort. And I think, and I think it's just good for them to know that we care about what they're doing and we want them to care about what we're doing. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Brian, for all the work you do on behalf of the industry and for your insights today. And I also want to thank our listeners for joining us on the Empower podcast, where today we learned a little bit more about what's coming up in 2019, some of the regulatory topics that we'll be seeing on the horizon this year, 
And there's so much more online. I'd love for you to subscribe to our Empower newsletter. That way you can receive updates on both compliance, but also some great thought leadership. Until next time, this is your host, Shelly Callahan, and you've been listening to the Mitchell Empower podcast.